Odin woke up. Another restless night of ominous dreams. If he wasn't tossing and turning, worrying about the day to come. His wife Frigg lay beside him, still asleep. She had that luxury, but she had spent the night prior crying in his arms. He had tried to comfort his love. However, he himself struggled to not join in her despair. If only the men of Midgard could see him then. Their all-father, their deity they had hoped to impress in their mortal lives, to join him in all of his glory on the battlefield. Reduced to a frail, aging god who wanted nothing more than to have his wife hold him in comfort to tell him that it would be okay. He sat up and put his feet on the cold grounds. He looked over at his nightstand to see a half-empty cup of wine. Without hesitation, he picked it up and drank the remaining contents, anything to help him numb the utter dread that had consumed his mind. He stood up and walked to the window, his kingdom beyond, its inhabitants starting their days. The Einarhar were already fighting one another, their steel clangs echoing through the air. The bloodlust in these former men was apparent. A lust for battle, for the smell of blood, a lust that had left him long ago. One of the men had recently arrived from Midgard, two or three weeks past. His name was Eric. He had been a king of men in Midgard, and the king of their souls in battle. Odin had prepared for his arrival to Valhalla. It would inspire hope among the Aesir, though really it was another glorified show for an Einarhar who would suffer the same fate as us all, including Odin's son, Balder. We are all going to die, he thought. The previous day, Eric had single-handedly slain eight others, only to have his guts spilled onto the grounds by another's axe. His life force bled from him, but he cried with excitement, laughed so loud that Odin hoped it had echoed across the cosmos, to where even Surtur could hear. However, he went silent then. Of course, he woke again, as would they all after their days killing and dying every day until Ragnarok. At that night's feast, Eric had roared with laughter alongside his brethren, eating and drinking enough to impress even Thor. Odin only looked at him with longing and admiration, but also with pity. Odin stepped away from the window, put his robe on, and walked to the mirror. He caught his passionless eyes, the dark, colorless bags below them. In the reflection, he imagines the dead witch he had seen the week prior in Niflheim, her smirk, as she confirmed that Balder would join them in the underworld. This time, the tears came. Though he knew hope was lost, he would not resign himself to surrender. He would never stop fighting. After the news he brought back from Niflheim confirming Balder's dreams of his imminent death, he had arranged a council of the Aesir, perhaps a futile effort, to offer the course of fate to save his son. Maybe the Norns could be compromised. Maybe Hell herself would spare him. Odin collected himself, dried his tears, and left to begin the council.
You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, I'm doing great. Thank you. Uh, last weekend, Beth was in upstate New York for the for the Labor Day weekend to visit her family. So I spent the three days, or at least I told myself I was going to spend those three days being productive, you know, like with the podcast, like going on long runs, like working out, eating healthy and things like that. But instead, I didn't do any of that. And I primarily just watched sports and I played a lot of FIFA for the entire time. It's, it's important to take some time for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It was, it was definitely a, it was definitely a good mental break. Uh, just, just yeah. from everything, um, especially with a long weekend away from work. And I'm sure Beth needed time away from me as well, but outside of that, just getting ready for our trip to Italy. Uh, we're leaving in nine days now, um, for that two week trip, it's our delayed honeymoon. So, um, uh, lots going on over here. How about you? I've been good. And I'm sure no one would blame us if we took a week off of the podcast, but I really like doing the solo episodes and, and I don't know, being consistent and conscientious. I've been good. I actually, you know, I got to do continuing education trainings as a, a therapist. And I just saw there's a, it's a podcast, but you can get credit for it as education talking about how to ethically do podcasts and blogs. And I probably should have, I did read an article on that a few months back, but uh, that it's helpful for me trying to be a little so more comfortable. You get credit for ta- for listening to the podcast, or right, yeah, and and then you have to, like you take a little test oh, nice. at the end to show that you're paying attention. But um, kind of getting a little more comfortable talking nice. about myself as a as a writer and therapist and things like that. And so I wanted to say a little bit. I think people we've kind of been talking on Twitter, and people might see our new icon. So between two ravens, we're joining the Wald Garden International Philosophical Society podcast network. I wanted to talk about it a little bit just because people might think it sounds kind of strange. Like it's a podcast about mythology, yet we're joining philosophy society. Really, the only change it really means for people is that we're changing from our hosting website of Buzzsprouts. And I still actually do really recommend them. If you're wanting to start a podcast and see what it's like, use Buzzsprouts. They're great. But uh, we move into Megaphone, which is by Spotify, which is kind of just a, I think it's already helping us find a wider audience. So it's been, it's been good for us. So I don't want to do too much of a sales pitch of why people should visit the Wald Garden website. Um, I might post a separate little short episode even this week on why I think, you know, if you're interested at all, you want to hear more about it, look there. I won't say too much here, but just that the Philosophical Society, the Wald Garden, their mission is really about finding, seeking practical wisdom. So that's how to live your life. It's not just philosophy to think about, you know, kind of fancy things. But it's really this applied philosophy, applied wisdom, wherever it might be found. So whether that's science or literature or poetry or mythology or mysticism, kind of a real range of topics that people bring to the walled garden. Uh, We got some really great other contributors there. So hopefully people who've been following the podcast, this Between Two Ravens, they can see kind of the connection between our, you know, talk about the psychological significance and the wisdom found in Norse mythology, how that actually does kind of fit in there. So for anybody that's interested in this at all, these kind of really asking you the really difficult questions, like what is the divine? What is wisdom? What is justice? Um, all of these things, things you know, philosophers think about and look at, and then, and then how do you live your life You know, after thinking about these things? It's completely free to participate in the meetups I've been mentioning. Every Thursday, there's meetups. You, know, you can check the website to see what's coming up. A lot of the contributors, their podcast hosts themselves. So they have their own podcasts on topics, you know, philosophy, history, self-improvement, spirituality. And a lot of them really inspire me, whether I'm writing or doing these podcast episodes. I've mentioned um, some of the ones on like Plato and Socrates and things, uh, Stoic philosophy, bringing it in here. So that's really a lot of interesting information. And yeah, uh, check it out or send me a message if you're trying to make sense of it all. 
Yeah, I definitely think I'm still trying to make sense of it as as well too. But uh, like, I do know that in reading about Norse mythology over the last few years, it has meant something to me, and like whatever it has meant to me has kind of evolved over time, depending on you know how I've grown as a person. And it's it's kind of really cool to take a look at these myths and see exactly what they might mean and what they might tell us about the human mind, which is ultimately what I like to talk about in this podcast. And that's also why I'm excited to see what you know, happens to Between Two Ravens as we join the Walt Garden. Like, who are we going to be able to bring onto the podcast to speak to? You know, who's going to be able to, you know, maybe come on not knowing the myths and maybe give us a new interpretation that we haven't thought of. But either way, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, David, I know you've been doing most of the legwork on this, so I, so I appreciate that. It's been great for me. I just that I get to, you know, write things that I enjoy writing and kind of get an audience for it. Um, so that's part of what really got me involved with them in the first place. And then they thought this, you know, podcast sounds... Uh, really exciting and yeah but in any case sean what what are we talking about today so we're going to continue our story on the ominous dreams of boulder so last week we discussed boulder's drama which is a poem that's typically found along the other collections of poems which are normally found in the poetic era in that poem odin upon hearing about his son boulder's dreams foretelling his death as in boulder's death not odin's Odin travels to Niflheim to find out why he's having these dreams and what they mean. Upon arriving to hell, he awakes a witch from the dead under a disguise to ask why the realm seems to be preparing for a banquet. The witch confirms that they are preparing for the arrival of Boulder, confirming his death. Odin ultimately lashes out verbally against the witch, to which she pretty much tells him to go to hell and leave. Um, so insert a bad Sean joke here about how Odin already is in hell. So he could have been like, well, I'm here anyway, but that's, we can probably cut that out. Yeah. I, I'm sure you're not going to, but that poem serves as a good in David's words from what he said last week, a deleted scene, or in my words from last week, a prequel that fits rather well within the story that we're going to be discussing over this week and the next week from Gilfogadine from the Prosetta which picks up how last week's poem began slash ended with Boulder having these disturbing dreams foretelling his own death. And the Aesir ultimately needed to figure out what to do about it to save him from this fate. One of the things I don't think we talked about in the preparation too much that I've been thinking about is that we're looking at the prose edda, right? So Snorri Sturlson's version again today. And these differences that the the, uh, poetic edda Baldur's drama or the deleted scene out of the poetic edda, right, is maybe a little more traditional. But then again, maybe it's kind of a fairly new, you know, relatively modern construction. Do you know? Do you know the time frame on Baldur's drama? I don't. But, but that it's in that you know old Norse poetic style. I feel like more where Snorri is very much that um, Christianized. You know, these are just some guys who traveled here from Troy. They're not really gods, right? So that's kind of the lens we're looking at today, I guess. Yeah. But it seems like the uh, it seems like it might have been written way later than some of the other stories, which is very interesting. But we do know it's not necessarily found in the Codex Regius, which we know was probably you know mostly recorded like a thousand you know plus years ago. Yeah, the, or, and um, the, the Prosetta is all about like the year twelve hundred, right? Snorri writing the Prosetta. Do I got that right? Yeah, and yeah. the Poetic Edda um, was compiled about fifty years afterwards. But we do know that a lot of those poems existed well before then. So the Codex Regi- Regius was written down in the late 1200s. However, Boulder's drama may have come much later, so it wasn't found in the Codex Regius. Um, but it ultimately is typically found with the other collection of poems in the Poetic Edda, if that makes sense. Yep, I think so. 
So with with uh, the Prosetta, as I mentioned, this is in Gilfogening. This is going to be chapter 49. And uh, one of these days, I, I might do a podcast short where I just discuss the linear progression of all of the chapters in Gilfogening and then do Scott Scoppermall and maybe include like some of the key players and characters in those chapters. I think that might be something that um that might be appealing to somebody that's like kind of new to the subject matter. But anyway, chapter 49 of Gilfogening is one of the chapters right before they get into Ragnarok, and uh, we'll see why here shortly. And the story takes place right after Thor's fishing fishing trip, which, as we mentioned, takes place in both the Poetic Edda and Prose Edda. They're a little bit different, but this chapter takes place right after that in Gilfogening, when Thor ultimately wades back to land after he punched Hymir the giant overboard after failing to catch the world serpent Jormungandr. So, Hi from Gilfogening mentions that Baldur the Good had a series of ominous dreams, which, as I mentioned, we discussed last week in Baldur's Drama, where he saw his upcoming death. Baldur tells the rest of the Aesir about these dreams. So they take counsel, or they took counsel, and they decided to seek a truce for him, protecting him from all dangers. Well, and that's one thing that Snorri is writing this. Clearly, he seems to know about this. There's a traditional idea of Baldur's dreams. Right, whether or not that poem was written later, right? That uh, Snorri knew about it. That it's an idea to make sure he includes. Yeah, and so the where this could be like a little bit different is that Odin in Baldur's Drummer makes the executive decision to go to Niflheim to see what's happening. But but maybe like at that point he didn't. They haven't confirmed that Baldur is going to die. But it seems like at Gulfagadin they have the idea that he is going to die if they don't do something about it. So. It could like be like a uh, you know a sideways like a separate timeline, um, but I do kind of like your idea of a deleted scene or my idea of a prequel here. But I do agree, Snorri probably knew that this tale existed in some capacity since he was writing about it. Right. So anyway, at this council, Frigg, who is Odin's wife and Baldur's mother, took oaths that Baldur would not be harmed by fire, water, iron, stones, trees, diseases animals, birds, poisons, and snakes. So she went to like pretty much every object and every animal and demanded their oath that they would not cause bodily harm to Boulder. Once these oaths were, oaths were made, the Aesir decided to have some fun. So they had Boulder stand in front of the others at court while somebody else would shoot something at him, or some would punch him, while some would hit him with stones. However, because of these oaths that were made, None of this caused him any injury. This However, and this it's, is, it's a very funny scene. Yes. Right? As you just yeah, picture this. <laughs> funny but tragic, yes. Um, so this is where our good friend Loki comes back into play. Again, this mini-series on Boulder is a part of our wider series on Loki as the cause of, but also solution to, but also the cause of, again, all of the Aesir's problems. Loki, son of Laffy, was not happy with Boulder not being injured. And I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe it was because of envy, uh, jealousness, or simply that Loki is an agent of fate who is designed to cause chaos. I like that so he's he the takes- counterbalance to oaths, right? This, you know, it's the it's a really good thing. What's wrong with an oath, right? The you know, Odin's making an oath. Uh, we talked about Tyr, kind of maybe, or some of the other gods being involved in oaths, and then it bothers Loki for yeah. some reason. I don't know why. Well, no, and I, that's that's a really interesting thought because I think in a previous episode, like I know we've discussed often how Loki is an agent of fate and he like often causes mischief at the expense of others, like in a lot of times himself. 
But I think I mentioned in one episode that Loki also kind of serves as an agent of chaos, whereas order could be looked at as like staticness, like giving law, like, you know, law, like not necessarily a law saying like, you can't do this or I'm going to arrest you, but just like a law of the universe. Whereas Loki doesn't like that. Loki is an agent of chaos and maybe he sees this and he wants to like wreak havoc as havoc as a result of it. No, but, but your point, it really makes sense as an agent of fate, right? If Balder is fated to die and you make all the oaths in oh, the yeah. world to say he can't die. Well, it's like, well, fate says he needs to die. So Loki's going to find a way. <laughs> yeah, that, that's much simpler. I mean, it could be both, but I think that's that's yeah. kind of much simpler. He is he does know that Balder needs to die. And maybe he's also pissed off because maybe this took place after um, Fenrir was chained up and Hell was banished, etc. So that's where Loki might just be pissed off at the Aesir and he wants to expedite Balder's fate of dying. So what he does, he takes the likeness of a woman, goes to speak to Frigg at Fensaler. Frigg asks the, quote, woman if she knew what was happening, and Loki replies that everybody was shooting Balder, but he was fine and suffered no injury. Frigg then tells the woman that nothing would harm Balder because she took oaths from all of them. Loki then asks Frigg, still undisguised, as I mentioned, if literally everything promised to not harm Balder. Frigg mentions here, and I'm not sure why she does, that there is a piece of wood that grows to the west of Valhalla that was too young for her to demand its oath. After Frigg told the woman this, Loki disappeared. You can tell I'm really on a kick with the uh, Greek mythology uh, this weekend and lately. But it reminds me of two stories about heroes. So the idea of Balder being kind of, you know, he's the son of a god and he's kind of this hero. So Achilles was one hero. He was protected by his mother. So she was a sea nymph and she dips him into the river Styx, which is basically the, the river to the underworld. But she has to hold him by his heel to dip him into the water. That's why his, you know, Achilles heel is the one thing that's vulnerable. It didn't get to be dipped in the water. So that's one kind of, of these stories where, uh, the mother's protecting the child so they can't be injured, yet there's still a catch. They can't be perfectly invulnerable. And that part about the, you know, the, the little twig, the little plant that is uh, too young to be sworn an oath. There's another myth. I couldn't remember who the hero's name was, but it, his name's uh, Maligar. But I remembered this part of that he's born and the, he's the son of a king. And the king has the fates foretell his future. And she's like, well, he's going to live until that fire in the fireplace burns up. And then he's going to die. And then they're like, wait, what? And they dive in the fireplace and pull the stick out. So his mom has to keep this little log or stick safe. And he's an invulnerable hero that can slay everyone in battle as long as no one ever puts the stick back in the fire. I don't know if that has anything to do with the, the little twig here, but that was where my mind went. Yeah. Well, no, I like the connection with Achilles because I, like, I didn't realize that the reason why Achilles like got injured like, got injured was because his mother protected him everywhere else. Yeah. And so you, like, you, do def- you definitely see a parallel here with Frigg and... Uh, Boulder because she she does everything she can to take all the oaths she can, but for some reason there's th- there's this code that she can't take an oath from a young tree, a young piece of wood. Yeah, they're so, not they're not they're not old enough I mean, to sign legal contracts. Yeah, maybe that's one of the Havamal virtues that we missed. Right. Yeah. But uh, in any case, so that, that little yeah, that twig, sense. the stick, it's the it's the mistletoe plant. So Loki gets a hold of the mistletoe and he went to the assembly. Hod, who is Boulder's brother, was blind. And I know we mentioned him last week in Baldur's drama where the dead witch told Odin that Hod would be the one to 
kill Boulder. But then again, I guess real quick before I move on, I guess in the scope of this story for Gilfogany, maybe the gods aren't aware of that and maybe Odin is not. Um, so that's one of the things where we have to take like Boulder's drama, drama as maybe something separate. Or maybe like Odin wouldn't do anything to stop Hod from doing what he's supposed to do, even if he knew um, or something like that. But so Loki approached Hod and asked him why he was not having fun in the festivities of shooting things at Boulder. Hod's response was that because he was blind and could not see him. Um, and so Hod, it does come up in an earlier portion of Gilfogany. So chapter 28 is Hod. And it says, Hod is the name of one of the gods. He is blind and immensely strong. The gods would have wished to avoid mentioning the name of this member of the Aesir because the work of his hands will long be remembered by gods and men. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And um, but really I do see, David, you have some notes on Hod here. Yeah. I'm really interested in this connection of, yeah, is, um, is Hod the same as Odd? They're almost the same names, H-O-D or just O-D. In different places, they're described differently. So Odd is Freya's husband. Or yeah. Otter, um, just if you add an R to the end of it. But Oh, and, and then Otter I've seen as a different character. So it, it's interesting as these names get kind of mixed up. And we've talked about how like the Old Norse is translated, right? It's the letter O-D, but is that D kind of a T-H sound? And there's a bunch of different ways to translate things. But that Odd, so Freya's husband, and there's Freya, the goddess of you know beauty, fertility, uh, but also kind of magic, right? says they have a child named Hanos with an H, but it looks similar to the Greek word for gnosis, G-N-O-S, which means knowledge or wisdom. But yeah. Had and Ad, that Had is the blind god. And I'm thinking about this part that Snorri maybe wrote some of these things later, but he heard about old ideas. Could it be something about this confusion of who is Ad and that he kind of sounds like a dark form of Odin, right? O-D-I-N or just O-D, similar names, right? And that Odin is half blind. I think we talked about like Hellblindy as one of his nicknames. And mm-hmm. that Hod is a fully blind character. One way to say that metaphorically is he's blind to the harm that he causes here as he kills. He's the one that's you know fated to kill Baldur, right? And he destroys the bright shining sun of Odin and it leads to the destruction of the world, Ragnarok. But I, I do like the connection between Odd and Odin because I know there we've briefly mentioned that Frey, there's like a connection there between Frigg and Freya. Yeah. And maybe like you know, in some um, like uh, archaic version of this religion, maybe they were the same goddess, but they kind of just evolved over time, like over distance. But a lot um, of my theories, they are, they're very much a stretch yeah. when you compare them to what's actually known in the text. But when I'm sort of, that's why I bring in the Greeks and these things, right? It's, you know, kind of archetypally, <laughs> does this theory make sense? Maybe there's just a little bit of support in the old Norse, but just the, the context I put these gods into. Well, yeah. 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 And I see, I see your note um, that we're going to be discussing here. Uh, here in a bit, David, but like, there's, there's definitely like a lot of connections between like, you know, Roman gods and Norse gods and, you know, Greek gods as well. So like that, that's, it's definitely, there's definitely a connection there. And it is very interesting to see like what happens if you went like hundreds of years before, like what we know as like the Viking age or like the Anglo-Saxon um, invasion of England, like what, like what was actually practiced at that time. Well, that's that part, right. Cause this is, you know, being written 1200 years after, you know, the year zero, right. The uh, birth of Christ, right. But that it's not just Christianity that affected the Roman Empire, but all these people who are learned and writing poetry, they're descended from this Roman tradition. So that, yeah, almost 2,000 years earlier, you know, in the 500 BC, they were writing some of these stories, uh, the Roman gods. So how much did Snorri know a little bit about Roman, Greek and Roman mythology? Yeah. Uh, Interesting question. Yeah, no, definitely. And I do, we do know, as I mentioned from a Hemskringla 
um, that Odin did have like this infatuation, or he seemed to have this infatuation with Freya, which would also kind of make a connection between Frigg and Freya. But anyway, we can we can um, move on to the next portion here. So Hod doesn't want to do anything because he's blind. Loki states that Hod should be quote honoring Boulder with the others, and that he would help him aim to shoot this twig, which we know is the mistletoe, at Boulder. So Hod agrees. And then I like the way it's written. The missile flew through him, and he fell dead to the ground. And this was the unluckiest deed ever done among gods and men. The blind man aimed, yep. throws it. Is it like a blow dart gun, or is it a spear? Do we have any sense? I'm just going to pretend he either had a bow or he threw it. Because Gilfogany in Chapter 28 does say he's super strong, so yeah, it could be either one. But yeah, I think the main thing is like Hod uh, went straight projectiled the, the mistletoe. Exactly. But going back to Gilfagany chapter 28, that's where it says the gods would have wished to avoid mentioning the name of this member of the Aesir because of the work of the, his hands will long be remembered by gods and men. So this is what he did. He kills his brother Boulder, unknowingly does so. So Boulder falls to the ground dead. The Aesir were then speechless. They all wanted to kill Hod on the spot. However, they were on what seemed to be the Aesir holy grounds, and they could not take vengeance on him on that spot. The Aesir instead wept. Odin, most of all, understood how much of a loss this was to the gods, and knew that the death of Boulder was a ruin for the Aesir. Yeah, God. I was going to say, my, my theory of why does he matter so much, it goes back to being the legitimate child, right? He's the, the one that's supposed to inherit Odin's position where Thor is his child, you know, very popular, very powerful, but he's a illegitimate child. Right. So I think that's part of Odin's weeping. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and he was like, he's the beautiful boulder. He's like the, uh, the icon of the gods, or at least like yeah. he was perceived to be so by the other Aesir. So when the Aesir gathered their senses and they stopped weeping, Frigg asked them who among them would wish to gain all of her love and favor by agreeing to ride to hell to see if they could find Boulder, and again, Hell being in Niflheim, or just Hell being Niflheim, and offer Hell, Loki's daughter, a ransom to allow Boulder to return to Asgard. And David, I made a note here. I know you mentioned this last week. I'm guessing that this was your thought on Hermes, the Greek god who traveled to the underworld, oh, yeah. um, being connected to Hermod, who ultimately decides to take up the call and go to the underworld, because Hermod the Bold makes that commitment to Frigg to go there to try to get Boulder back. I mean, it feels like that's got to be Snorri took that name from the from Hermes, right? <laughs> it's just kind of putting yeah. odd at the end to make it sound a uh, Norse, right? I, I think. I don't know if anyone knows that to be true. But, yeah. yeah, but it's definitely there's definitely like a connection there. And I, I did some very brief research before this episode, and I think they both have like winged helmets um, in some of like yeah. the pictures that we have of them. But I think it's it's too much of a coincidence for Hermes in one pantheon and Hermod in another pantheon to both be known to travel to the underworld. But ultimately, Hermod agrees to go, and Odin lends him Sleipnir. So that's what we're going to do for this week. Gilfagany chapter 49 continues, and we're going to detail that next week, um, where we discuss Hermod's ride to hell and ultimately what the Aesir need to do to bring Balder back. But I think for this episode, David, that's a good place to stop the actual myth. Um, so what are your thoughts? I have a connection yet. Yeah, explain more of that myth of Dionysus and uh, Hermes, because it's explaining, you know, why do I think Dionysus tells us something about uh, Balder? 
just what's coming to my mind right now, and I'm wondering for some of the fans, right? This question of yeah, how much of this is traditional old Norse, you know, Germanic gods, right? That it's inspired by it, right? But then it's you know Christian writers, year 1200, putting the stories together. So how do we find the pieces that are like unique to old Norse? It's also just maybe somewhat how how much are these you know the archetypal stories out of the collective unconscious, right? That that maybe these stories were already there, you know, Scandinavia before the Greeks sent their, you know, kind of uh, stories along the Roman story, Greek Roman story told in a old Norse way. What do you think about that, Sean? Cause it's one of those questions. I don't think anyone quite knows as I listened to a lot of experts, how to separate those things. But if, if you don't have like internet or like telephone or something like that, and you don't have like means to travel long distances very quickly, and you pretty much have what is a game of telephone over time and distance, like these stories are going to change. Um, so there's going to be some, if there's like these broadly accepted or like practice religions, like the Greeks with like Dionysus, you can see these connections with gods or goddesses from other pantheons, like um, not unlike, you know, Hermod and Hermes or like Thor and Zeus and things like that. Um, I think that's what you're getting at, David, unless I'm missing something, but no, that's exactly it. Yeah. And that there's, there's so much of this, you know, in, in history, right. You know, yeah, people didn't have the internet. They weren't traveling by plane. Right. But these stories and things traveled. Cause that, that was the idea with Tyr that his name shows up in the like Indo-European roots, things that might even trace back like to India and a uh, Hindu culture and um, things like that, or earlier than that. It's very messy how these messages might have kind of traveled by telephone, as you were saying. And also another thing is, you know, if people want to understand the world around them and let's say hypothetically, they will say, like, well, there's evil in this world. There's like trickery. So yeah. if they are going to, you know, look elsewhere outside of this, this world that we live in to explain that. And they say, well, yeah, there's a God named Loki who is like the God of mischief. Like maybe that's like just and like naturally humans way, regardless of where they are of explaining things. Cause you see like trickster gods all over the world and you see like different parts of the human minds and like different impulses of the human minds, like kind of creating these manifestations of these deities that people ultimately grow to worship or fear, if that makes sense. No, and I think it's the questions I really sorry, like. Are, I, the questions I like are, what are things that are kind of our common humanity and what are just our cultural baggage, right? Because the idea, yeah, the trickster God, he's bad, he's evil, is very much that Christian perspective, very clear. What's good, what's bad? But that the trickster is creative and necessary, comes from more other cultures. And even in this story, right, that, you know, Loki's the one who's involved. No, no one thinks of Frigg being the bad one for trying to get oaths to protect her son. It's like, oh, well, of course she would do that. But it's like, no, you're going against the natural order. That's not right. Some people might see it that way. Others might not. So then that, that case, Loki's the good guy. He's just restoring the natural balance. But then also that it's his son, Slepnir, who helps to go to the underworld and try to, you know, is involved in bringing Baldur back maybe. So that Loki, you know, we see this all the time with Loki. He causes the problem and then he's also the solution, right? And it's, yeah, it's, it's he's just that complicated. But so let me, t- let me tell a little bit of the story of Dionysus. I might do one episode putting it all together, like a short episode. I'm not quite sure yet. So Dionysus is the son of Zeus, and he's the child of Zeus and a human queen. So the idea is if then you'd be a demigod, part mortal, part divine. And that's like a lot of the great heroes, Hercules. He was destined to be a king, right? His, his mother's a queen. Um, his father's a god. But then, of course, Zeus's wife, Hera, who's a bit like Frigg, she's not happy with Zeus fathering all these illegitimate children. You know, she's kind of spiteful and she wants revenge. 
so she goes in disguise and she talks to the human queen and gives her some advice. You know, she says, well, you know, if, if Zeus really loves you, test him, ask him to see him in his true form, right? Why, why won't he show you, you know, how wonderful he really is, what he looks like as a god? He's always coming in disguises. Of course, Hera knows that if a human being sees Zeus in his full god form, they'll burst into flames. So the queen does ask Zeus this. She says, you know, promise me a favor. And he says, of course, anything. I love you. I'll promise you anything. She asks for this and he's like, he has to keep his word. This is his oath, right? That he gave his word. Then he begs her to ask for something else, but it's already kind of been promised. And so she bursts into flame, but then he saves the womb. And with the help of Hermes, who's the messenger God, but he's somewhat also the God of medicine. He carries the caduceus, which is that symbol, a staff with the snakes intertwined. They help to implant this womb into Zeus's leg so he can finish gestating the child uh, in his leg. So this is a little bit like Loki giving birth is one way to say it, right? That Zeus is the father, but now he's also going to be the mother in a way. So in that way, Dionysus is born of a god, even though he was part mortal to start. And they send him into hiding. So he's dressed as a girl and raised by many women. So Dionysus has a very, and this is so Hera won't find him and try to kill him. And he has a very chaotic life. He dies. He comes back from the dead maybe multiple times, you know, you know, Christ dies and is risen. I think Dionysus goes through it at least two or three times. And often it is Hermes that brings him back from the underworld. And then Dionysus develops this trait where he's the one who goes to the underworld. He brings his mother back from the underworld. He brings his wife back from the underworld. Before I go a little further, Sean, what's your thoughts of? I think the connection between Dionysus and Boulder is like easily there, I guess. I more so went straight to Ymir and how his legs procreated yeah. with each other. Right. Um, and like, I know you mentioned Zeus kind of impregnating somebody through his leg and that's kind of where my mind went, but I oh, definitely yeah. think it's very interesting to see like Dionysus's journey, like journeys and how Hermod has to get him back from uh, hell. If, if Boulder's also the God of like the God of beauty, pretty much he's like the beautiful yeah. Boulder and he like radiates light. There's like some, um, not like a, I wouldn't, I don't want to say a feminine quality, but like if Dionysus was also raised, like as a woman or like as a girl, like maybe that has some connection as well, or like a very yeah. loose connection, if you will. It, that I, the, the way I kind of put place both Balder and Freyr as just a little bit more on the, you know, traditionally feminine of the gods, right? They're not, um, but then the Dionysus is like kind of a God of both light and darkness. He's the God of wine, especially, but that wine can both be a, a wonderful experience and a terrifying rage inducing experience with some people that back and forth, right? And that, and kind of goes to that idea of rebirth. And there's something else I was going to say that Dionysus, yeah, very much the like both masculine and feminine. But in some ways, he's a little like Freyr, like very much masculine fertility, but he's also very feminine in a way. And one of the things that happens to him, I think this is another one of kind of punishment of uh, of Hera once she the, the queen once she finds him, that the Titans, which are basically like the Jotunar, tear him apart and eat him. And the only thing that's left is his heart, which uh. Zeus's favorite daughter, Athena, is able to rescue the heart and somehow get him to be reborn again. And that the cult of Dionysus, they say, things that you, know, you can read about, that it would often be women who were followers. And rather than being in the traditional temples, they would some of their rituals would be going out into nature and finding a live animal and tearing it apart and eating it raw. So as you think of these ideas of like why people are terrified of witches and pagans, that seems terrifying, right? <laughs> Whether it's a sacrificial goat or just some wild animal. And these women in a, in a frenzy, whether they were on, you know, influence of uh, substances or just uh, kind of like the berserker kind of strength of Odin, right? It's, it's a much more exciting tradition than just eating the, you know, the bread and the wine as the, the body and the blood of Christ, but rather taking a live animal, tearing it apart to recreate Dionysus's death and rebirth. 
the Dionysus very much has this connection with Christ and he was written about, you know, hundreds of years before Christ, but uh, theories I enjoy reading about. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Sean? I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, and the Romans, um, especially towards like the fall of the Roman empire, where they were very much given to excess, they changed Dionysus into their God Bacchus, who was just a drunk God, just a big kind of fat guy who's lazy and eats, eats grapes all day and drinks wine. But the Dionysus was much more interesting for the early Greeks and that he likely came to the Greeks from Turkey, which I think is where Troy, the city of Troy is. So he wasn't like originally yeah. a Greek God, but as the Greeks started to spread their empire or their uh, trade connections, they kind of brought him in and they created the story of, you know, where did he come? Oh, Zeus got another woman pregnant and here comes Dionysus. And then he, especially after, I think the second time they brought him back from the dead, that he really got to be considered a God rather than just a half human, half God. But yeah, so, you know, there's, there's a lot, we, we don't get to know a lot about Balder, right? Just, oh, he's beautiful and Odin's fa favorite son, but that maybe there's something similar to Dionysus is a, a neat way to know more about him, even though we don't know much about him. Yeah, no, I like that. And I also, I'm, and I know you mentioned Troy, um, like based on the pro prologue from Prosetta and Hemskringlet, actually, yeah. Snorri states that the Aesir gods were actually people that migrated from Troy. And that just reminds me of this uh, video by Jackson Crawford, where he mentioned that people trace their lineages back to Troy. It was kind of like the cool thing to do in his words. It was like saying, Oh yeah. Like I'm a, like, like I'm not unlike today saying, Oh yeah, I'm descended from Scandinavia. So I'm a descendant or, of the Vikings or the Mayflower. Kind of thing, right? That's if you're, if you're in America, yeah. I'm descended from the Mayflower is kind of your, um, I'm OG. Yeah. That, um, Troy was in the, the Iliad, so it's kind of one of the first written mythologies of from this kind of uh, Greco-Roman tradition. That's why people want to trace back. And there's something I'll probably bring up next episode, maybe on Troy, uh, some interesting historical parts. Just one other parallel. And this is just a weird connection, but it goes back to my theory that um, I think Snorri must have read a lot of these stories. We were talking about how Hod was... No, sorry. So one is that, that Odd is married to Freya, the goddess of beauty, right? But then there's also this part where Hod, he's the blind god. He's kind of he's not really their favorite, right? And they almost want to disown him after all of this. That there's a god like that in for the Greeks as well. And so it's uh, Hephaestus. So he's the he's the god of the forge, and he's the only legitimate child of Zeus and Hera. But he's lame. He has a club foot, I think is what they say. So that he's not you know the spectacular beautiful hero. He's a, a crippled god, kind of like Hod. And he's married to Aphrodite, who's the goddess of beauty and love and things like Freya. But what's interesting is that Aphrodite is always cheating on him with Ares, who's much more handsome and a better dancer and the god of war and all these things. So I don't know why I think Hod is similar to Hephaestus, but if Hod and Odd are similar, they both have aspects of Hephaestus. So. Gotcha. Just weird connections I like to make. Well, no, I, I like this because I've always like wanted to kind of put a, the same amount of effort into like learning like Greek mythology, Egyptian mythology, or like even Roman mythology. And, you know, yeah. maybe we can get started on this podcast with you finding the connections, but <laughs> yeah. And, the, and that's the idea that they're the, the archetypes, right? So that the, um, the, the invalid, the injured, you know, sick, sickly or injured kind of uh, character right, is an archetype that uh, the warrior is an archetype, right? So that in that way, Ares and Thor are a little similar. The magician who travels to the underworld, right? That that's a little bit Odin, that's not a thing Zeus does. Not too much, I don't think. He sends a messenger, right? But Odin goes there himself, right? And then Hermes goes there, and then Dionysus becomes a figure who's already come back from the dead once, so he travels back and forth kind of freely. Yeah. Nice. 
anything else, John? What, what, what do you take away from this week's section of the uh, the, yeah, the story of Balder? Uh, like, I know I don't want to get back to fate every time we have an episode, but like, this is like one of the consistent things over this series, at least. Like, the gods know that something's happening to Balder, and they're doing everything they can to try to change his fate. Just like Odin is trying to do everything to stop Ragnarok, which he knows is his fate and also every everybody else's fate. And I also kind of, I just really like your idea about like Loki. The reason why Loki's upset to where he orchestrates Balder's death is because he doesn't, he doesn't like going away from fate. He is an agent of fate. So I kind of, I like that connection that you made earlier, but. I was wondering if you're about to say this. One of, one of our other themes that we've come back to a few times too, is about sacrifice, right? That uh, Odin's really not willing to sacrifice his son, right? And I mentioned before, that's the, from the Abrahamic Bible, from the old Testament, the idea of sacrificing the son. And that, you know, because you have Baldur's beautiful, right? The, the the firstborn golden child. So it's not just fate, but it's that part, the thing you really don't want fate to go that way. I am excited to uh, continue the story on Boulder next week and see exactly what the gods do to try to get him back. And like ultimately what they need to, you know, what, what results from that and what, what is Boulder's actual fate, you know, when it's all said and done. Um, but no, that's all I had. All right, John, you have a good night. Yeah, you too. Thank you, David. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to Between Two Ravens. If you've been enjoying our show, please write a five-star review on iTunes to help spread our podcast to a wider audience. See the show notes below for links to follow us or leave a comment on social media. Our podcast is part of the Walled Garden Podcast Network. The Walled Garden Philosophical Society is committed to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, beauty, and the divine, wherever it might be found. Visit thewaldgarden.com to learn more. All seekers of wisdom are welcome to join the weekly meetups and explore the writings of the philosopher, contributors, and other podcast hosts within the Walled Garden.